0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has thousands upon thousands of retail locations all over the United States and they offer great batteries, right? Now, I got a buddy who is kind of a car nut, a truck nut, and he told me that, I guess on the research that he's done for car batteries, Interstate Battery car batteries and truck batteries are some of the highest quality most reliable truck batteries that they have on the market I don't know anything about it it's just what my buddy told me so if you're looking for a new car or truck battery you need to go to your local retail uh, interstate battery retail shop and go pick one up because I guess they're badass so I know I have one in my truck other than that If you have TV remote controls, Interstate Batteries makes uh, a battery for that. They make batteries for your rangefinder, your trail cameras, and basically any other electrical device for the most part that you use uh, while hunting or fishing or being outside. They also have a whole bunch of other little knick-knack products too, like uh, uh, my buddy Dan Spano, Uh, he is uh, uh, a manager for his family's Interstate battery retail location. He got me some of these cool flashlights that have switches on them. One of them looks like a lantern. So they have a whole bunch of that stuff too. If you want to find out more information about the kind of batteries that Interstate Batteries makes, head on over to interstatebatteries.com or visit your local retail store.
1: Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast. With your hosts, Garrett Prowl and Boudreaux Boswell. Yeah, so tell me about that Wisconsin hunt. How did that go down? Because all I really know at this point is that I've seen the pictures. And did you have a video on that one? I don't remember seeing the video on the Wisconsin hunt.
2: You know, I'm running about a month behind okay. with my edits. just uh, working and um, I'm just not as you know, efficient with it. And then I went to a MacBook, So I, I do all, I move me, but that's even a little more elaborate because I was off just my phone for the longest time. Um, and that's the only, you know, I, I wanted to stay consistent and relevant and try and be up to speed with stuff. But, you know, with the editing software now, there's just so many more angles that I'm doing compared to last year and stuff. So I'm running a little behind, but, uh, it's the first time I'd ever really like taken time off and like dedicated some like ideas to like scouting and bouncing around. Yep. Usually I would just go up and like dive in and start hunting like spots or sign or something I thought looked good instead of like trying to cover some areas. So I had got up there and hunted a few other spots and I, I really like to just pay attention to parking lots. Like, I, I feel like I spend a lot of time just moving between pieces, just trying to keep tallies on people, especially if I'm in, you know, over a weekend. And that's what happened with this piece. I noticed one vehicle in it, the same vehicle, both uh, Saturday. I, uh, he might have been in there on Friday night, too. And then he was in there Sunday morning. But Sunday night he was not and i was like okay one guy it's a pretty good sized chunk hill country i was like i'm i'm betting you he's not going where i went right so i went all the way i went all the way up in this piece um with a westerly wind and like being newer to hunting and like not really being brought up in all the big buck stuff like i'm pretty aggressive and a lot of it's just because i probably don't know better but uh I got up in there and I actually did a little more. I put I put down quite a, quite a bit of ground scent in the area I ended up hunting in, but uh, when I got up in there, there was a north south um, trail along the property line, and I had just cut a fresh buck turd. It was it was pretty cold by then. Um, this was October twenty seventh, so I, I I could tell that it hadn't sat overnight. It was definitely from that morning. And then off on the private, you can see a green food source, like a food plot of some sort. So I was like, okay, he sent check that this morning, um, traveling whichever way. So I decided to set up after walking around and seeing on that top third bench, the historic rub line. But to me, like in the past, when I didn't see like the fresh rubs on it, I would typically move, keep moving and be like, nope, like to keep going. He's not in here. But something about like the timing and everything and just the history and how many trails were like trees were rubbed up. I was like, it's just a matter of time, right? Like you have to sit it. Sometimes spots are just good and you need to just hunt them. So with, with that, I found like one little doe scraping, hunted the trail that that was on thinking he would just come straight downwind and maybe, um, head, head down to the lower ag field. But my wind started to shift, and I debated with myself for about a half an hour about getting down. And uh, I, I sat down and calmed down and popped open on X, and it just so happened the fence line, too, was a pretty hard transition line that went down to the lower ag field. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, maybe one will be in that lower field tonight and not find what he wants, come running up top to this bench, sent check that field. And that just so happened around, like, right at last light, Big buck popped up on the bench, grounded real deep. Like I'm a newer hunter, 2016 was my first year, so like deepest ground I'd ever heard. Like shook me in the tree for a second. Yep. Looked, saw, saw good, good frame. Um, picked up bow, turned back, turned camera, turned it on, and uh, all of a sudden, like no movement for what felt like several minutes. So I set my bow back down and looked back, and finally took a couple steps. And this was the first time I'd ever watched like a big buck do big buck things. And he would take like two steps, stop, take. But his back was to the field. And I think that's because it was a little thicker over there. So he couldn't really see out there anyways. And he, he could still scent check that field. And I was in like a mature open flat. So he could look back to where the ridge forked off. One went on the private, one went on the public. And he could just wait for movement coming off either of those ridges his way and he took a couple more steps and i was full draw on him at about 40 yards and tried to stop him and he just didn't hear me and kept going and i decided to let down and eventually he took off running towards that ridge and i was like okay like he's up in here running right now i'm gonna leave my stand just take my camera take my bow get out of here and i went back to camp and looked at the or before i got down i looked at the wind and it was like a northwest wind i was like he's gonna run somewhat similar i'm just gonna have to adjust on him so I got out of there, and uh, was up early the next morning. You know how long those hikes can be. Oh yeah. Up into some of those hill pieces, especially if you fumble and maybe take a take a wrong turn. So 3:30 I was up and up there by five. Moved my set and hung by like 5:45 and like 6:30. I actually did a rattle sequence and uh, hung them up and just waited. And it was 730. He came pouring off that ridge like I expected. Like, just read the script and 40 yards stopped him. But the hit, man, I, I thought I watched Fletchings disappear. And he must have broke the arrow off right away. And that's why I thought that happened. Because when I got down the track, I found, like, zero blood, zero hair. And just, like, it, for the first time, I, like, panicked by myself. Because yeah. like newer hunter, I just didn't really know what I would do and I checked a little bit, but I had had a bad hit like two weeks before in Iowa. But we can't use dogs in Iowa. and Wisconsin, you can. Yeah, so yeah. that's what I, I just I just resorted straight to that. But actually like I heard him fall. And like I was very confident in the shot. I shoot a very heavy arrow for like Whitetails, like five thirty ish. Yep. And uh like I'm not really afraid of the shoulder and I sometimes I am sometimes I'm not I shouldn't say that but and that's that's just what happened I caught part of his top shoulder blade and then just dug right into the other one and just no blood until he fell down five yards away but long story like I had to back out because the tracker wouldn't come unless I had private land permission and then I got down there and they they were like helpful, but didn't really want to be because they just had had problems with uh, people in the past. And eventually, did help me though. And um, what I just didn't do was like peek down over the bench and. You have seen him right there. I, I was six. Yeah, I was sixty yards from him at one point. So. Nice. Didn't even go onto private,
1: but. So the the thing that made you hunt that spot was more of like a almost a gut feeling saying that yeah this stuff like this it's not torn up right now but like it's it's probably gonna get torn up over the next like couple of days
2: yeah you got to give it the time and man i i hunt a lot off gut feeling that's what i i think has like allowed my progression some of some of the fastest once you learn to like just walk by the stuff like that isn't that hot it's 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 very a temperature game you know yeah like if that if i didn't cut that turd i might not have Cause like me and that thing, like, I temp checked it for sure. And it, I, I just had a feeling and it worked out. It was all good. Like you said, mostly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Those, sometimes those smallest things can just make like the biggest difference. Like in that Missouri hunt just this past weekend or this past week, we were walking through an area with the plans of just going and just flying right through it. And the snow mm-hmm. was coming down. It had turned from sleet to snow like two hours prior and we cut like, two or three sets of tracks in the snow so you know that the deer were just running through there there wasn't any yep. other like there's no rubs no scrapes in this area and then we bumped a doe and she had a, a buck behind her which it's like we got to sit here like it's hot right yep. now and yep. ended up killing them so it's kind of the same no, thing I mean, it's almost the, like a gut feeling and that just like real hot sign even though it wasn't like a ton of sign sometimes that is the thing to do
2: I take it as far as even with like trail cameras, sometimes I won't hang them over a creek crossing if it's got a good sand bottom. Because like if you're in there each time, you can tell if that sign's fresh enough and moving soon enough. And like with public land and proximity to ag like really has a depiction of like if or if not, it's in daylight. A lot of times it's not going to be if it's close by, right? So Mm -hmm. you can really time it without having a photo or anything
1: um yeah yeah and then the only thing you're missing out on is just like what the exact deer look like in that area and you can get some of that more or less from track size occasionally if the stuff like at a creek crossing when the ground is soft enough to leave a fresh track
2: i quit uh i quit i I really quit looking at rubs like unless it like stops me man like i i'm i'm a track guy now uh josh prophet's a big reason for that yeah he, he just like, he you know, I mean, you hear people say you can watch a little buck, like straight tear up a tree if he's like feisty enough, you know what I mean? He spends enough time on it. So the track is like the telltale for me you now.
1: Yeah. I love, I love the tracks. The, the one thing that can make tracks hard is depending on the area. Sometimes you get, you get it where it's either too soft to leave a track that stays Like if it's wet Mm -hmm. and it's just mud and it just fills in right away and then the ground is too dry or hard and it's just not – like you might get a little impression in the leaf, but it's just not enough to really go off of. Sometimes that can really make it tricky to look at tracks.
2: Yeah, I I would agree there. And the like I tried – like I had that problem in Kentucky early season is, like, I ran field edges because, like, speed scout, s- scout transitions, right, like hard edges, yep. and, like, it was just so dry you couldn't cut no tracks, and I, I text my buddy, and he's like, man, hit the creeks. Of course, then I, I stumbled the area I hunted got hit bad with EHD and that led to some bad things, but, I mean, that's where I was able to read sign because they just, you know, you weren't you weren't finding it yet unless you were cut, cutting tracks, so... <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. So you started
1: hunting in 2016? Yep. So who were some of the people that got you into it? Was it just kind of on your own, like you wanted to do it? You had friends that hunted? or You know, a
2: little bit. I had a mentor kind of from college um, that got me into bow fishing was really how I started and got back into the outdoors. I had trout fished as a kid, but really got lost like somewhere in between, just in crap. Um, But came full circle started bow fishing then just realized you know i kind of wanted to be bringing home something if i was going out like all night and sleeping all day yeah and so i wanted to continue archery and so i just picked up bow especially moving back to iowa but like that year i was kind of late with it like i didn't get the bow till late september and then really didn't get in the woods till like november which was okay like because i just ha- so happened to like in iowa you have to name and phone number your stands if you're gonna leave them on public and this guy had one just in a perfect pinch point and i had put it in my phone and after a couple sits that morning and no luck i texted him and he said yeah go ahead and it wasn't like 45 minutes later i missed a pretty good pretty good buck on iowa public and was pretty much hooked ever since but you know how your first year was or at least for me it was pretty much just tripping around the woods with a bow in my hand like didn't really do anything right um, yeah, yeah it's, I'd, I'd say me since.
1: I'd say you you pretty much jumped right in off the deep end. It sounds like, with just a couple of years later, you're doing you're traveling to different states, self filming like that's <clears throat> that's you know pretty hardcore stuff to to just dive right in and be doing within a couple of years of actually first picking it up and in, in the first place.
2: Yeah, so like I never really I'm 29 and like i don't know in society's eyes probably super freaking behind but whatever right um and like bow hunting's the first thing that ever like rewarded me in what i felt like was sufficient for my efforts and like i have felt so much personal growth since that yeah uh i promised myself like when i Got the opportunity that i would give my life to the outdoors so i just have and then i i like to combine like tent camping with it because that's what we did as a family growing up um and we we traveled and you know drove around a lot so and it's just cool to me like i lived in eastern iowa growing up man and i didn't understand public lands existed so like that's just wrong and like with the issue with like conservation and hunter numbers and stuff like i felt like it was like my role to like try and be a spokesperson for them sure so um you know in the self-filming thing kind of goes back to like my skateboarding days as a teen like was just too broke to have a camera but always wanted to film like me and my buddy skateboarding around and it's really kind of the same thing when you think about it and so as far as like action and stuff goes
1: yeah it is a lot i mean you, you get that footage and then you got those memories that you can do whatever you want with, you can keep it for yourself. You can share it for the world to see It it really does add a, another dimension to, to doing what we do.
2: Well, it's like, I thought about it too, before we got on, it's like, it's like shooting them twice. Like, and it, I don't know, it's just another added challenge. And like, so for me, like I tried to promise myself after the last one, cause I had a terrible hit, like just the other day that like camera, on a deer when i'm solo and fit like a lot of it is i I hunt solo i went through you know tried to find some buddies and it just didn't work out i ended up just wasting time so i was like whatever i'll just you know do it on my own it's it's relatable right like think about how many new hunters go out and like don't have a friend or something to go with yep so i decided to go that route and like after the last one in iowa it was just and not being able to see where i hit them like, is so pivotal, like, but when you're by yourself, so I was like, I, I have to have the camera, and, you know, the record on, and, you know, I, he actually t- two steps out of frame, the last one, too, I fit, I just zoomed too far in, you know, so. Yeah,
1: it's, it's tough, there's, there's little things like that, you you pick up, and, and try and tweak, and it's, you can never get it perfect all the time, That's it's just, like, it's crazy, it's something that you're just never going to nail trying to do everything by yourself, but a couple of things that, I found have been pretty helpful is for the main cam, just doing 4k and just keeping it zoomed out, even though it looks, you think it looks better zoomed in, but it's so easy for that deer to just take two steps. Like you mentioned, just have them walk right out of the frame and then starting to run a a head cam in 4k has been helpful for me too. I've had now over the past couple of years, uh, this Missouri hunt that I'll post the shot is with the kill shots with a head cam my Alcott was with a head cam um, and two of the deer I had on film last year were, were head cam shots. And
2: you run it off to the side, right?
1: Yeah. So I run it. Yeah. I have that soul vid strap and I just have my Sony. You have to put it a little bit behind your ear uh, cause you have it straight on the, the on the side of your head. Yeah. Once you draw your bow back, then all of a sudden it turns and you're, you're missing the frame. So you have to have it like back a little bit, but then in the case that your main camera just is in an awkward position, you can't like get it in the right spot. To be able to still draw back and shoot, you can just kind of like forget it. Or if the deer walks out of the frame, you have that little bit of extra, and then you might not be able to like really easily view that in the field, uh, unless yeah. you just kind of pair with your phone. It still gives you that extra footage to be able to review at least a little bit where the shot goes with your uh, lighted knock. At, le- at least when yeah. it's like inside twenty, then you can really you can really make right. decisions based on it.
2: Right. Yeah, I run a handy or I run a GoPro over top of me. You know, it it doesn't really like cold weather. I got to find a better solution there. But that's what you'll see in the Wisconsin because, yeah, like I promised myself. So then in Wisconsin, you see me and you know how it is. You can't just hit the record buttons on a handy cam like you have to press them to like engage record. So you'll see me just hit it or maybe I hit it twice and I started it and then stopped it, but I'm pretty sure I just like tap it and think I turn it on Mm -hmm. and then you'll see it live. I'm like, Oh crap. I didn't like actually. So I'm learning and learning fat, but, but that's what I love about it all. It's like constant, constant challenge, constant, like the adversity comes often, Yep. you know, and when you can really learn to like stay on the positive side after facing that stuff, uh, you know, I've just, I've had some cool hunts. Like once you make it over that little hump or through that little dip. So,
1: so you mentioned the camp setup when you go out of state and I saw some of the pictures too on your Instagram and little clips in some of the videos. Do you run anything that you feel like is like unique or special in terms of your camp setup? Or are you basically just running like a, a, you know, typical tent? Like, is there any any things for your setup that you feel like are really critical for temperatures or for batteries or anything like that that
2: is the, useful? Any, some sort of tarp. Like I just run the Ozark trail tent and I, I do pretty good down like to, I don't know, 25 degrees or so. Uh, so like part of my process going to bed at night is I'll stand by the fire for as long as possible and then hop into my, throw a big body warmer in my sleeping bag. And then hop in and strip down because like your body regulates heat pretty well if you can stay inside a sleeping bag. So I can I go down to pretty minimal layers often, um, but it may it also makes it really easy to wake up. And I've I've found when I like use like any sort of cabin heat or like even air conditioning early season, like I just I'm just not as driven to go out and like be on the mission I'm typically on. Um, and then the biggest key for me, I think since like, I really try and rough it a lot is like an overhead structure of some sort. So like when you're up out of your tent, you can like stretch your legs and like be dry. Um, because like, I'm pretty confined in like a three person tent, like it works, but like hanging stuff up or like trying to be dry or it just makes it like, like a lot more cozy.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. What do you do for charging your cameras and stuff like that between hunts?
2: Um, I I have about four or five batteries, but other than that, I just run car batteries. Like I, uh, the camp, I, the campground I stayed at in Wisconsin's, you know, has Wi-Fi in the shower and stuff, so that was okay. not as primitive. Um, but Iowa, Iowa's yeah, pretty primitive. I do have like a cabin option. If it drops down under, you know, ridiculous temps or stuff, but I really want to upgrade tent because I'd like to go West and do some solo stuff. Yeah. Like, it's,
1: um, the, for, in terms of the space and weight ratio, the TP type shelters are pretty nice. Um, yeah. They're not always the best option for some of those early season trips though, just because of the bug issue. Right. Um, but some of them have nests too. So like I, I have a seek outside shelter that's got the big teepee. It's like a six man. So it's, it's a lot heavier than I'd want to bring solo out west. But if you're car camping or something like that, you just get a lot of extra space and then you can throw a bug nest in one half of it. And then like your other half, you can throw on like a a little table and throw your laptop and batteries and and whatnot and be able to use that extra space. So that might be a, a nice option to look into. And you can run a stove in them too.
2: Yeah, we just used a stove last week in Kentucky and man, like that's crazy how much heat they put off. Oh, like yeah. it was not it was like 95 when we'd hop in the tent and you like can't breathe, take layers off as fast as possible. Sleep on sleep on top of sleeping bags for a while, but I just got a Subaru. So I'll pro- I'm I'm looking into like a Yakama rooftop tent option. Okay. Just to be up off the ground. See, and then, like, I work for Cheyenne Camping Center, so I've been talking with the parts guy about getting a Zamp solar watt solar panel system for okay. my roof. So, and then, you know, running it through a cell or something like that and yeah, distributing it's... the power through USB.
1: That doesn't sound like a too bad of an idea at all.
2: I think it. so I've got, like, a luggage rack for up there, too. So I think I could just mount it to like the back of the luggage rack, park my car the right way, or even the top of the Yucamaha, But
1: So then are you able to typically park and camp at the same place that you'd hunt? So you basically like get up, get dressed and just start walking? Or would you have to basically camp at a different spot than where you'd go to hunt and have to get out of that thing, collapse it or whatever, so you can actually get in the, the front of the vehicle and start driving you again? You know,
2: that's a great point. I haven't even thought of that, but... I could walk in my Iowa spot unless I had to like get super mobile and like had some pressure come in. Um, and like, I'm pretty mobile the way it is anyways. Like I like seeing new terrain. So that might not be the best option now that you bring that up. Cause that would be freaking annoying.
1: That was the only reason that I, that I basically, cause I was looking at the same Shied thing. Away. I was looking at yeah. the, the truck, you know, the little topper style, you know, pop-ups. And yeah. Then, yeah, I went through that same thought process. I was like, man, like half the time I'm just parked at a campground because there's a campground there and it's got electricity and whatnot. And then I got to drive 15 minutes to get to wherever I'm hunting.
2: You know, I've been wanting to utilize a mountain bike more, especially like on solo kayak missions, as yep. ridiculous as that sounds. But like if you get a cart for a kayak behind a mountain bike, like that's not a hard pull at all. And then your car at the drop-off spot, just go up river or upstream. A lot of the flat waters, I mean, honestly, in Iowa, even Wisconsin, you can paddle upstream at a de- decent rate. You know, don't try and kill yourself. But I'm, with the floods, it's been a r- little ridiculous. I haven't done it, like, since it's been flooding. But <clears throat> last year was a bad year. Yeah, this year we had high water
1: in a lot of places. Did you? Yeah. And then uh, e-bikes too, are, are something that we're legal. I don't know what the the laws are like for e-bikes in Iowa, but those can those can be a really uh, a big step up in terms of like what you can do with them versus even like a just a pedal mountain bike.
2: Right, right. I I don't think you can utilize e-bikes on public ground, but I think you can mountain bikes on public ground in Iowa. Okay, I'm. But don't quote me on that. Yeah. I think it varies
1: a lot by, cause there's, there's federal regulations and there's state regulations and sometimes the game departments themselves have their own regulations on what is or isn't allowed. Um, and sometimes they don't have, sometimes they'll say like non-motorized use, but then if you look in like the state statutes, sometimes you can find more, more, uh, like exceptions or stipulations. Like if you're under a certain wattage, it classifies as non-motorized and little things like that, but they're a lot more expensive too. Um, just using the old pedal power is definitely the, the more economic. Yeah, I mean choice. you can
2: get one for like twenty five bucks probably. <laughs> yep. On Craigslist, but uh, I know like Iowa's kind of quirky like that too. I think there's like public land access lands, and then there's conservation lands, and then there's like wild game management lands. Okay. Because forever, I thought you couldn't camp directly on public lands in Iowa, unless they were like state forests or something like that. But then. Someone at a BHA pint night had brought up to me that, no, it's just, it's just the certain type of land you cannot. So
1: what's it like then in Iowa as a resident in terms of like the tags and application processes and weapon choices and, and all that stuff?
2: So I'm strictly a bow hunter, but I mean, it's basically just go to Walmart. It's a pretty cheap process. It's pretty easy. And can um, you go throughout can, the
1: entire state with that tag?
2: Yeah, we're we're not zone restricted okay. or anything. It's just a non-resident um, do, thing. Do, does are yeah. That's that's why when you ask Iowa people like about a zone, like I've had several people ask me, and I'm like, I don't even what counties are in that zone because we just don't have to pay attention to it. Uh, gotcha.
1: Yeah, I've been. You got some points down here? Well, no, not right now, but. I mean, for the past several years, a lot of my friends that hunt Iowa have been trying to get me to buy points, so I, I may start doing we it. We
2: talked about it. Yeah,
1: and in, in the past, in the past, I mean, I've dude, always
2: that's, that's three out of state hunts basically, like tag wise.
1: It's expensive. It's very
2: expensive.
1: Because what I compare it to is like I can go out to Colorado and buy an elk tag for six hundred dollars, roughly.
2: R- yeah.
1: And then splitting in gas Britain with Homes. everybody, it ends up being like a thousand dollar round trip to go hunt elk you know give or take like other gear and, food and stuff yeah yeah uh, whereas iowa you know it's like i'll probably take a scouting trip or two that's gas money right there and then with the points and the tag i end up spending you know probably close to the same amount as i went on an elk hunt for an animal that i have access to in plenty of other states for a lot cheaper so really the only the only reason to do it would be if i felt like either i wanted the experience where I felt like just, you know, trying to target an, an older, older age class animal that there might be just a higher density of in some of the land in Iowa versus where I, I have to really work a little bit harder in some of the other States.
2: I recently, you know, was close to a guy that's from the East coast out here hunting white tails. And he just, he said it was just a different experience. Cause like you can actually talk to them out here. Like they're not, they're not pressured like they are, you know, in most other areas. So like calling does does work in most instances. Oh. Um and then like but it still holds true. Like T V made it wrong, in my opinion. I've only been back here like or hunted two years, but like you can talk to a lot of people in Iowa and like sure there's giant deer in Iowa, but like they're not really everywhere. You know, you're still going to really have to hunt for those giant deer. Um, there's really good deer in Iowa, but uh, I think everyone kind of has it out of whack for especially the tag price on what kind of deer are here.
1: Yeah, and that that's what I've heard from other people too. Um, you know, there might be more like, say, three-year-olds running around than a state like Wisconsin. So from that aspect, it might be easier to shoot you might have a better odds sitting in a rut funnel and shoot like a 130 140 but you can't just mm-hmm. go down there and expect to shoot like a 180
2: yeah and like yeah be on them every piece you go to or it, right. it just doesn't happen man you see it a lot with like just the quote like the average guy that takes a buck here in iowa when you like start looking through those posts like that's what people really shoot in iowa and it took my buddy tim cool who moved out here from uh new york to like open up to me and be like yeah i killed a booner my first year but like we thought we'd do it every year he's like it just it doesn't happen like that like
1: yeah well you, you touched on the pressure thing too um it, it seems like even though there's fewer people in iowa there's also a lot less public land than a lot of other states
2: so yeah, the hunter density it's under three percent
1: yeah so the hunter density in some of those areas i'd have to imagine during like the prime times like around the rut has got to be you know, maybe as bad or worse than it is in states like Wisconsin where there's more places for people to go it's, and you can find spots that aren't as pressured.
2: Especially when you sprinkle in some out-of-state pressure just because the notoriety of it being Iowa.
1: Right. So. Yeah, the uh, the pressure right now in the, the Twin Cities area of Minnesota, you know, to give you an idea, I'll be, when I was out over the weekend, I did some scouting because I got cold midday. Um, I saw a couple deer in the stand and then just went on and did some scouting and I jumped three deer over the course of that afternoon. And we're talking no trees for hundreds of yards in any direction. And those deer will jump up and they will run and run and run until you can't see them anymore. And they never stop to look back. Whereas it's like so many other times you'll like kick up a deer and you know, they'll just bound off for 40, 60 yards, stop and look back. These things, they're so used to, to getting shot at, I think after they get jumped that they just, they just go (laughs) (laughs) like a bottle rocket. Yeah.
2: You're hunting out of the saddle. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've been doing it for, gosh, I don't remember how many years now it's gotta be like two or three. I think the first year it was kind of 50, 50, uh, where I, I did it a little bit and then I took the whole next season and just did like all my hunts out of a saddle to like force myself through the learning curve. And hmm. I was doing a lot of it out of like the the d i y harness with the sit drag and the rock harness, and then mm-hmm. started using the commercially made saddles after that and that's, which
2: one are you running?
1: uh I use mostly the mantis right now, yeah, and then I'm testing some other like prototypes um but it's yeah it's um I run that with the the predator platform for the most part if it is like an all day sit or like uh a gun hunt or something like that. I'll throw on like a couple extra se- steps sometime in the backside of the tree, especially if it's a big sure. tree. Um, but for the most part, yeah, that's what I'll what I'll run.
2: Have you had that ambush in your hands yet?
1: Only at ATA last year. But I did have I have in my basement one of the original assassins. My dad and I each bought oh, each bought one of those back in '05. And I actually killed. There was a point in time where I killed more deer out of that than I did out of my assault tree stand they
2: say those are the bee's knees
1: well there's there there's good and bad aspects to it at least in my in my experience with them Um, and i think the new ambush has got some slight differences from the old assassin that assassin what made it kind of it was it was great from like standing on it you had a lot of platform room the harness itself wasn't super comfortable um, because you're mostly standing the entire time but the way that it folded up with that casting, there was like a a little ridge by the leveling bolt that if you wore it like a backpack, it would kind of dig into your spine. So then it it made it kind of like awkward because you couldn't carry it quite like a backpack. And I ended up just putting like a duffel bag strap on it and carrying it that way with the sticks just kind of strapped to the outside. So I ran Mm -hmm. that for like, I don't know, two, three years off and on. And I used it probably more than than my tree stand. But then at a certain point, I started hunting out of the tree stand more. Um, and then I got back into saddles a couple years ago and I've mostly just been running the smaller predator, um, since then.
2: I'm, uh, I'm awaiting a saddle. I have an ambush sitting here, but yeah, you know, I, I like the mobility idea of it. I think so. How often do you really spend, like, how much time do you spend looking for a tree that's going to be a sufficient saddle tree? Or is it really just like, oh, I can hunt in that one? It's, so
1: I think think it's. Like,
2: with cameras and stuff, it can't just be like, oh, that one.
1: The process, I would say, is similar time-wise to what it would be when I used to hunt out of a tree stand. It might take me five minutes of looking. It might take me one minute. It might take me ten minutes. And what I'm really looking for is I'm looking for, I'm trying to visualize myself in each one of those trees. And I always want my shot opportunity, ideally to be on my strong side. So Mm -hmm. when I'm looking at a potential spot and let's say it's like a a bed style hunt, I might say, okay, I expect the deer to come out of this spot. There's a white oak right here. I want to be on this side so that I can be on this back side of the tree and then have that shot to my strong side. I just have the camera running there so I don't have to like turn everything around and And flip around Um, I like to have the trees You know a certain If they're really big they're just more difficult to climb Regardless of what you're hunting out of It seems like and if they're too small Then you gotta be careful with your movement Because the the tree can shake if you shift your weight Um, I prefer to have trees that are Offering cover If they have split trunks or limbs everywhere Sometimes you get those big red oaks With little shoots going off in every direction I like to try and talk myself into those so a lot of it goes, goes into like trying to figure out, okay, how, what tree can I set up and make the least amount of movement possible to be able to yeah. see the deer coming in, draw back my bow, get the shot on film. And it doesn't always work out like that. Like sometimes it's just not like you can get into a tree, but it might not be a great like tree for, um, whatever angle I have to face, or it might just not have like a lot of cover. And I just gotta be like really cognizant of when and how I move but I'd say the, the process overall is not too different than what it was with the hang on. I've,
2: I haven't i have hunted it out of a saddle, but I've been in one and like, I just come from a roofing background. So I'm used to like hanging from a harness. So the first time I sat in one, like I already knew I needed one, but like for me, the 1.0 is like just super just light enough. And like the way they turn the I beam and yep. the finger grips in it, it just makes it so easy to hang that I don't really see like saddle hunting being that big of a difference for me, but like the hike is all part of it. Right. And sweating and layers and stuff. So you will shed some ounces and like, or some pounds, but like with filming, that's like critical. Um, But I learned mostly like whatever, doesn't matter what anyone hunts out of. Right. As long as people are getting out in the woods. Um, Like, for me it's when you get in those areas and like you find that spot you want to be in like do not rush and just pick a tree and be get up in a tree because like i'd rather someone said it the other day and it was something like i'd i think parker mcdonald just said it the other day it was like i'd rather be late and be in the area that deer are instead of being early to an area area that deer aren't yep and I, i just felt like in the past i'd get in areas and like feel like the anxiety building that the sun's rising and it's getting light and I want to be hung and set and not moving and picked you know some wrong trees in my past and you're already in there so just take the critical time to like really analyze what's going to go on when you get up in that tree because you're not going to want to move
1: yeah and what you may find too is to your point that that 1.0 stand is so light of a platform as is you may you're shedding a little bit of weight going down at the ambush, but what I think you might find in terms of yeah, like a the tree. Ambush
2: se- is heavier.
1: Yeah, what you might find in terms of like a tree setup is that with the saddle you can you can be on the back side of the tree, whereas in the with the hang on you're on the front side of the tree. So given a tree of sufficient size, let's say, what I what I tend to find if I mean this is all like, you know, hypo- hypothetical ideals. If you have the sun to your back Sometimes it makes more sense to be on the front side of that tree, because then the deers is going to look up and it's you're going to it's going to be blinded by the sun, right? So you'll have basically that tree hiding your silhouette. Whereas if you were with a saddle, your silhouette would be poking out a little bit from the back side of the tree. Whereas sure. if that if that sun is, um, if that sun's the other way, then like it's in your face, then it makes a little bit more sense to be in the back side of that tree, uh, because then you're not just exposed out on the front side of that bark where that deer could just look up and just see you. your your overall profile is more obstructed. And yeah, you're gonna be maybe profiled off the side of the tree, but it's not your whole body. It's just like a little bit. So that was kind of something I picked up on ground hunting this year, just in terms of if I wanted mm-hmm. to set up on the front side of a tree like I was turkey hunting, or if I wanted to hang off the back side of a tree. Was just how that it's sun like was shadows. Yeah, how that sun was yeah. hitting me and whether or not I wanted to be in the shadow or if I wanted to I mean, you basically want to be in the shadow, like, regardless is kind of the idea. Well, then,
2: I like it to be in the deer's eyes, too. Like, right. if it's coming I- in. Ideally. Because that, that's, yeah, I, I look for that the most. But also, man, I think I'm just a saddle guy because, like, when I hang my hang-on, I hang on the back side of the tree almost every time. Yeah. Like, just because I I feel like I, I stand all the time. So, if I, my movement, and I like an 18-inch tree, typically, like, diameter-wise, so... Yep. Typically, your torso is blocking, then I'm a taller, thinner guy. And then it's just arm movement. So, with any wind, like you typically just look like a branch or something moving up there. Um, And I, yeah, I just let the deer walk by the tree or it walks by me, you know. And then, of course, they always come from where you don't expect them to, (laughs) too. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. It sounds like, it sounds like then based on that, I mean, you'd probably be a good candidate for it. Do you know what yeah, harness you're going to get? Man. Are you, are you going to end up getting the this, the harness that will eventually come with the ambush? Or what are your thoughts on that?
2: I will eventually, but I'm going to try a hybrid first. I should have a flex here Monday. Okay. So, pretty excited. Um, except there's going to be a huge learning curve and starting it now. Like, I don't know how serious I'll take it, but... I do have like five doe tags in Wisconsin or whatever. So I think I might go up there and swing around and just try and knock down a bunch of does late season. Cause like we talked like the CWD is pretty prevalent up there and sportsmen are just like leaving the counties where it's at. And like, I get it right. Everyone wants to harvest a mature buck and stuff, but if the overall numbers don't go down, right. Then like the disease will never disappear in general. So there's a reason they're selling four do or giving out four doe tags. They're not even selling them when you're buying the license up there. So I feel kinda of obligated as a sportsman to go back there. And I think they might be open a little later than Iowa, maybe not. I think the Southern Farmland Zone has that late season.
1: Yeah, that'll be good a good kind of learning grounds to figure out the system and get used to the movements and what you can get away with, but you can't get away with and just becoming comfortable with hanging like that. Um, well mm-hmm. part of the learning curve is just being comfortable and allowing that thing to hold your body weight and just kind of leaning into it and being relaxed versus being like tense. Cause that'll mm-hmm. affect how you're able to move. And then the other part of it is just like your footwork and your movements for being able especially sure. on like the weak side shot, just learning what you got to do and then making it like comfortable and knowing when to do it. Mm hmm.
2: You got any more hunts planned this year?
1: Well, so the... This weekend, tomorrow is the last day of the shotgun season for the non-CWD zones in Minnesota. I'm undecided on whether or not I'm going to go out for that yet. But then Wisconsin's rifle season starts next weekend. So I'll do that for sure on the opening weekend. Um, Which, technically, it's out of state, but it doesn't feel like out of state because I've been hunting Wisconsin for a long time. Right. Apart from that, I don't have any other out-of-trip state plan or uh, out-of-state trips planned yeah
2: we'll see i've got a i'm leaving first thing in the morning to go do a body search for a gut hit deer um that i hit wednesday i bumped twice i think i bumped once that night and then bumped twice the next day and was tracking gut matter And finally, when I bumped him the second two times, he was already down in a draw near water, and it was like within five yards of each other. Yeah, I was just like, if I just back out and leave the steer alone, like he's gonna expire, I hope. So that was kind of my mindset with that. Could Um, you tell? And I've
1: had. Could you tell where at you hit him in the guts? Was it like mid body, a little bit further back, low?
2: I think it's mid body. Um, I had. A little bit of white hair on my arrow and by a little bit i mean just one but uh he's leaking i think i hit him low because he's leaking kind of directly under his track yep and then uh but i got stomach i'm pretty sure because i was picking up bloody soybean so
1: okay and how many hours has it been will it will it have been
2: it's going to be several days since now i mean it it was just kind of my only option i had to call in that next day i was already gone five days unpaid leave and felt like you know it, it was either a lose my job option at that point or yeah so i was like i didn't i didn't want to push him around um and possibly push him out of the piece or across the road since I had already bumped him out of there twice, I figured, you know, he's going to go right back down in there if I just leave him the hell alone. So, that's what I did.
1: Well, good it's luck on the, tough lesson learned. Yeah, good luck but, on the search tomorrow. Was there anything on the shot-wise that you would have changed and, and kind of how that all
2: dude, played out? Dude, you know, like I said, it, I... I I just feel like it's a monumental moment for me harvesting one in Iowa because I had, like, I missed one in Iowa in 2016. I haven't hunted since then here. And uh, that one I had actually called in, um, which was uh, awesome to me too. There was snow on the ground, um, which is kind of sentimental to just me in general. But, uh, yeah, the fact that I had called him in, was a big part of it and man to be honest when i stopped him like i was so jacked up at that point because there was a moment i didn't think i was going to shoot him but then i was like oh no he's better than i thought he was so when i went into the sequence i had already felt like i was rushing myself and i when i stopped him dude and you hear it on camera like i i yelled at this deer you'll hear it i just i stopped him way too loud and he pinned me and it was kinda like I put it on his body but I never picked a spot on him. Gotcha. And that that's just all part of being a newer bow hunter. Like but I think newer bow hunters really underestimate when they target practice like shooting at a deer structure before the season. Yeah. Like that's that's it's pretty critical, like getting used to where you want to hold on an actual deer's body before you walk into the woods, in my opinion yeah and just shooting targets is fun but
1: and just understanding what they're capable of doing after that arrow leaves the bow
2: yeah yeah and like dude like when people talk about court like broadside and quartering shots they never talk about like how minimal a quartering shot can be and like just a little bit of like a movement um that a deer can make especially in like a 30 yard shot to like really change that arrow position on impact and things like that can really, you know, make, make nightmares happen. Yeah. And they can, that's make, what I feel like. They a can living.
1: make a, a shot that looks really good on first glance actually turn out and to be like
2: good. Yep. a lung liver
1: got hit instead of a double lung. Like you thought, and it doesn't take and, much. Yep. yep.
2: Especially when you put them on high alert like that, like they're already coming, looking for noise, looking for sound, looking for movement. <laughs> so but man probably my coolest hunt when i got down and recovered the arrow i had a solid like 135 with some trash come in like just a stud three-year-old and just tall tine not too wide but just tall tine kg and he came into like seven yards before he realized he was like standing there looking at me (laughs) really and yeah i'll shoot you over the video but he just you know i don't know so it's fun for me because like I haven't seen a lot of deer from the stand, even though I hunt a lot. So, like, aging deer for me is tough. And, like, I've found, like, the best way for me to, like, learn the in-age class of an animal is harvesting that animal and putting that animal in my hands. And, you know, wh- whether it's what I wanted it to be or not when I harvested it, um, that doesn't matter to me. I just wish that it happens ethically. So, I feel pretty terrible about it, and but I'm learning, like I said.
1: Yeah, well, the other thing I think, too, that's that's important, I think, that also gets kind of skewed in the the current social media age is just the fact that people, especially people who are new, um, sometimes miss out on, like, the stage that a lot of us had when we first started hunting is when we were a lot younger of, like, shooting the deer and then, like, shooting the first buck, whether it's, like, a 4 corner or whatever, and then shooting, like, a whole bunch of, like, you know, year-and-a-half-year-olds, two-and-a-halves. And just kind of like getting that experience and, you know, learning the ins and outs of shot placement and, and all that kind of stuff. Cause when you get on one of those older deer, you got a lot less margin for error. So it's, it's like that experience well, thing that, that, that really makes a big, you know, it makes a big difference when you've, when you've shot more animals, regardless of, you know, what specific age class they, they might be, you know.
2: Yes, especially when they get older, like you said, they're just machines. So if you're off like I was, like, it it doesn't really matter. That dude's going to lay down, look that wound shut, and, you know, deal with the infection for a little bit, maybe limp. But he's probably going to live, you know what I mean? Because he's just especially cranked up like they are right now, full of testosterone. Like, he probably just thought he got hit with, like, an antler or something and ran off. But, you know, I have... Kurt Geyer of the working class bow podcast to thank for that. I asked him one of my initial years hunting and I was like, you know, dude, how do you set goals for yourself? Cause like you work hard and you put all this stuff in, but you want to have fun at the same time. You don't want to just go out and freeze your butt off and sit out there and not bring home any of meat. Cause getting into it for me, a lot of it was the meat thing. I got started to get concerned with like through listening to podcasts, like I get some knock for being a podcast hunter because I'm self-taught, and that's really how I learned. I lived in Chicago for a while and just worked with you know some immigrants and um, some Hispanics where like I couldn't just connect with them and speak their language. Mm-hmm. So I walked around with headphones in a lot and listen you you know guys like the working class guys and your podcast you know just constantly and Meat Eater really opened me up to just like what meat was supposed to look like, especially once I harvested my first deer and I was. Ever since it was like I don't really want to buy my meat from the store anymore. Yeah. Um. So, but yeah, like I will have to agree. Like, for me, the fun in it is like trying to go to three states and harvesting three Pope and Youngs. You know, I was fortunate to harvest a velvet buck in Kentucky. Um, opening weekend, and not a lot of people, you know, can say they've even seen a velvet buck in the woods. So.
1: Right. Yeah, it's, that's a pretty, pretty cool experience. I enjoyed
2: watching that hunt. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, public lands are just really fun if you give them the opportunity. And, like, you'll see pressure, sure, but just don't let that pressure eat you up because if you're on a good piece with the resident deer population, you know, those deer are going to stay there most likely unless they get ran completely off the piece. You've just got to, like hunt where no one else is of course but it takes some time figuring that out but once you figure out like just how people are accessing stuff in that pocket that people are missing you'll start to have a lot more fun just stick it out I found when I wasn't like trying to like chase private lands and stuff and get permission and just like went and dove into public land after public land after public land that I learned the most and I just I I was the most successful because I put all my time there instead of spreading myself out elsewhere.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely. And even those those big parcels, especially that get even a lot more people. Sometimes those can be the really good ones to learn on, just because, like you said, there's overlooked spots, and the place is big enough that even if deer are being kicked around, you can usually relocate them.
2: Yep. Yeah. And I don't, you know. There's like I think there's like an unspoken challenge, right? Like we're all out there for the same thing and stuff, right? But you know, even if you go with your buddies or if you don't, there's still like a little bit of competition side that's maybe friendly, maybe not friendly, but uh at the end of the day, you know, unity's super important. And that's kind of why I do it too. It's just the unspoken competition thing like some guys, you'll walk by a guy in the parking lot that tells you good luck. You know, there's nothing in there, but maybe you were on you went out there on a Wednesday after work for two hours and picked up two shed antlers in the middle of a week when everybody else, you know, went home because it was raining. Mm-hmm. So you just, you're just on to something different. And it's pretty crazy when you do the minimalist things like that and just allocate your time like that, um, what you can learn. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think like what do you think has allowed you to have your most success while you're out there like especially bouncing around state to state?
1: I think so for me it's been kind of there's been stages where I feel like I've made jumps or leaps and just kind of learning what to do. And I think initially for me it was a combination of learning to read maps and learning what to look for on the maps. And like, for me, a lot of that learning initially came from like the hunting beast DVDs and like blood brothers DVDs at the time, um, before the hunting beast was even a thing. And I even, I watched like the old whitetail adrenaline DVDs and, and, uh, all that kind of stuff jived really well with the type of land I was hunting. So I was able to pick up a lot of information from that. And then I was able to really easily kind of, you know, growing up in the digital age, apply all that to mapping and so that was kind of the first thing for me, was learning to use all that, that mapping technology, apply it with the key concepts and use it to find like spots to be able to check out on the maps. And that made just an enormous difference in, in kind of what I learned, but then more recently, the, the bigger thing that I've been kind of, you know, picking up on and it's whenever an a never ending thing is just learning to read. A fresh sign in the woods um, and, and being able to make judgment calls based on that so it's it's one of those hard things to like put your finger on because it's not like you can just it's not like you can just write an article and kind of be able to piece together from that article like what it is to be able to find fresh sign and like what to look for like you can kind of you can kind of get it through dvds and articles and, and things like that but like the, the easiest thing that i've kind of found or learned is when i hunt with with other people that are better hunters than me like if i go out turkey hunting with shane simpson like i learned more turkey hunting two days with him than i learned an entire There's season trying to, trying to hunt by myself right like just the little the little tiny things like i wouldn't even know to, to like look at that or pick up on that or do that little thing that he does and he doesn't even like might not even know to include that in the video to like teach somebody because it's just so like second nature to them right that type of thing Mm -hmm. like that's that's like the the woodsmanship side of things that for me has made the big biggest difference over the last like several years that i've really been trying to apply in addition to all that you know mapping and and key concept stuff that i learned you know many years ago
2: i'll say targeting beds definitely has helped me like i I cut my teeth listening to a lot of the buck bedding stuff dan put out and stuff like that and then his theory of like bumping deer is like i i like to cover ground and I'm like i'll walk quick i i i've got a weird thing with like only picking spots out on maps and only going checking those spots i don't like to do that mm-hmm. i feel like you can like just miss some things um so i like to try and tear open a whole piece when i can but i learned when i would bump deer That when I would look down and look at the sign that I'm walking over and like think about how far I was from the deer when I bumped those deer is like when I started to like add and subtract like how close I needed to be when I needed to start slowing down, thinking, looking at things and I think when if you're not just like going out there and you're paying close attention to like small like when you bump a deer it's not over you know what I mean you you can really learn a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, listen, even when you think about it in the aspect of like listening to them blow as they run off, like you're listening to them give away their escape route. Like that's the route they want to go. So, so you can predict on the pressure side of things. If someone comes in and does the same thing as you on a similar wind and you can set up, you know, in that secure area, they're headed towards. Yeah,
1: that's a really good, that's a really good tip. Um, and the other thing too, is if, if you happen to be after a particular animal and you just don't know where he's, where he's at, like kicking him out of his bed is going to give you a pretty good idea, you know? Yeah.
2: hmm You know, I do that in shed season. Cause like the public land thing, you can't really like rely on picking up a set out on public land. Cause anybody can take a Monday off and go out there and scoop up, you know, your antlers while you're at work. So I I like to start scouting right away. And honestly, I'll. I like to go before they drop him Cause if I bump them and can put a visual on them, like that's good enough for me. Right. Like he's already yeah. survived. He looks good enough for me. Like I'm going to keep moving, mark his bed and keep moving. So, and then ice is still, you know, everything's iced over. Um, so you can just cut across waterways and stuff. And
1: Yeah. That, that aspect's really nice. Although, there's some areas by me that even in like the dead of winter you'll still get soft spots. I don't know if it's just I like I saw
2: your video the yeah, other day.
1: There's... 'cause I've even noticed in the in the early fall, some of those open water areas will have like little currents, even though it's just like a marsh. Like there'd be little yeah. area, little channels and, and moving water which just you can just ever so slightly tell that there's a current there. And then I think sometimes there might be there's some kind of thermal thing going on where it's just like warmer for whatever reason. <laughs> Um, and that keeps some of those areas really soft and sometimes even keeps them open when the other stuff's got six inches of ice on it.
2: Sure. Yeah, so be careful whenever you're out doing anything of that nature. Yeah. But, I mean, and obviously OnX is, like, my go-to. I don't think I could do any of this without that, honestly. Yeah. The- and it, it's... It's critical, like, saving your maps before you even leave the house because you just don't realize how, like, limited you are even leaving the state with me. Like, Iowa, I have a small U.S. cellular company, so, like, once I leave Iowa, like, connection's not really good. Um, But, like, I don't know. That's why I, tur- I like to turkey hunt. Do you turkey hunt a state typically before you'll deer hunt it?
1: No, but that's... That's not a bad idea.
2: Um, You know, I'll I'll try and shed hunt it, and then if I can, turkey hunt it, velvet scout it, and then a day before opener or whatever is kind of the guideline. Because, like, man, I learned if you can at least get there and learn the logistics of a place and how it lays out, you put yourself way ahead of the game than a lot of people that are coming from out of state because you take a wrong turn, like I said, even walking in a piece but do it driving and not pay attention, like, you can really put yourself out of the game missing a parking lot or a turn or something like that, so.
1: Yeah. The other thing I picked up on, and I don't always, like, go to, like, Turkey Hunter or, or like, Shed Hunt a place before I go there, but, like, sometimes the first time I'll pop into a place, I'll have scouted it for however many hours on X, and then whatever places that I've marked, like, I maybe go to, like, option number one and you go check it out and you find out that there's like a parking lot that wasn't on the map, like 200 yards from that area. Right. Or you find out that there's like a private land owner who's got like tree stands all around that area and like puts them in the public land too. And it's like two and a half miles for you to get there, but it's like 200 yards for him. And it's like, okay, well Mm -hmm. I can cross that off. Right. There's like all these little things you just can't tell from the map and you just got to actually get out there and, and figure it out and put boots on the ground to be able to really make those last final, like, decisions.
2: Yep. I, I like to look for like parking lot and access, but other than that, I, I don't, I don't like to mark them up too much or anything like that. I like to just try and get in there and walk the whole thing as much as it, as I can. So, and I don't know, just, I, I'm a bigger parcel guy now. Like I real I used to hunt some smaller, some thousands and it just, the pressure can really mess a piece up like that. Mm-hmm. So.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. I prefer the bigger chunks if I can, because it doesn't take much to screw up the small ones. And the, the small ones can be great. But like you said, if right. you if you don't have the confidence that it hasn't been hunted at all, it's tough to put all your eggs in that basket.
2: I'll I'll sit some smaller ones, especially if they lay out, like, between, like, bigger chunks of private that might have some sort of pressure or something Uh, like this time of year, people are going to be pounding private ground. Yep. Um, so, you know, they could be pushing those deer back and forth across the public. So.
1: Yeah. And I I think the last thing for me, that's kind of made a big difference is just the, just the mobile hunting setups overall, whether it's a light tree stand or the saddles like I've been using mostly, or, or even just learning like to effectively hunt on the ground. Compared to like the the cheap lock on you know the fifteen pound twenty pound stands that we used to use back when we
2: first started. You don't sit too many of the same trees, do you?
1: Typically not. I'm not opposed to it if the sign is hot, especially if it's like during the rut. I'll hunt the same mm-hmm. the same spot twice. But I mean, typically if if it's an early season set, if I don't see what I want to see, I'm either repositioning in that spot or going to a different area altogether. Or just trying to access it
2: from a different angle, you know? Yeah. It's used. Uh, something, like, for me, too, is, like, I go in really early compared to most people, I think. Um, But I, I got a weird thing with gray light. Like, I I think there's, there's, like, first light and then there's gray light, right? Yeah. And then there's that blue light, like, right before it and I really try and be, like, way past the parking lot at that point. Like, I want to be back, like, pretty close to my tree before it's even getting gray light. Um, whereas, and I learned that, I think, being a new hunter and not probably having the best gear was like, okay, I got to get in and make my metal noises, like, way ahead of any typical, you know, mobile stealthy hunter because hour goes by, you know, deer are way over, So I'm typically set up for an hour before, you know, first light, sitting in the dark.
1: Yeah, I think that's especially critical when you're on a new piece too and you might not know exactly how you're going to set up or where you're going to set up in the dark. I usually, like this year, I haven't even really hunted that many times in the morning. And when I have, if it's a new place, oftentimes I'll end up just sitting on the ground instead of trying to, you know get up in a tree that might not even be super great and then find figure that out like you know right at first light like oh I should be in that tree right so if I hunt on the ground it makes it a little bit easier in the morning sets
2: I've a lot of you guys are like that that are like my buddy Josh doesn't like hanging sets in the dark and it all makes sense to me but I feel like with the weekend warrior type thing that I do or try to stick to, I do sometimes I drift a little too hard and maybe not work as much as I probably should. Um, but I, I feel like if I'm not in there, even if my set's in the wrong tree or whatever, if I'm not 20 foot up and I can't like visualize over an area like that, because I'm new, I feel like I'm out of the game. And I think it's only because I'm new it's like, I feel like I need to see deer to feel like I'm on deer. So I like to, I, I, I at least like to be in a piece in the morning. Cause at least you're all the way in there under the cover of the dark, right? Up in a tree or on the ground, it doesn't really matter, but.
1: Right. Yeah. I think for me, the, and I've, I've done exactly that where I've, I've hung stuff in the dark and it's gotten light and I've either been able to see things or I've even just shot deer out of those trees. But mm-hmm. it's there's also been a lot of times where I haven't been satisfied with either the tree I was set up in or I miscounted, like, how many limbs were on the tree and how, like, gnarly it was going to be to climb or take some weird goofy twist, and then I end up, like, taking 45 minutes to climb the tree in the dark and I'm sweating and it's, like, first light anyway by the time I get my
2: camera gear all ready to go. Wasted energy. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I've had that happen plenty of times too, trying to go in blind in the dark.
2: Do you, do you, would you say in those times you were maybe a little later than you should have been?
1: Yeah, but it's always, it, it's always tough to, it's always it tough to like know exactly. Cause you don't know how hard the tree is going to be to climb. It might be a 15 minute tree. It might be an hour tree.
2: And Do you run a headlamp?
1: I uh, try, yeah, I do usually in the morning. If I, the only times I won't is like, if I'm out in a marsh and I know that once I climb that tree, like anything for like,
2: it's going to shine
1: across for like a quarter mile is going (laughs) to see that light just as a beacon up on the other side of this open like grass, (laughs) then I'll not use the headlamp. But if I'm in, if I'm in hardwoods, I'll use it. Big ones. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Like I said, I I think (coughs) I do a little more poking around than most people probably do, but I'm definitely not afraid to like get in there and walk around a little bit and make sure I pick through what I think is the right tree. It definitely, I would agree. I, I waste a lot of energy sometimes that way and would probably like hunt better total if I could figure out the balance. Yeah. But I said that, that new like urge still kicks in to just be out there. So yeah.
1: Well, if you ever, once you get the opportunity to have a successful hunt on the ground that gives you a little extra confidence boost. That like, that's true. They're like, okay, like I don't have to be in a tree to be able to get this done,
2: right? It might yeah. be the it might
1: be the best option, but it might not be the only option.
2: My cousin tells me I'm cheating for hunting out of a tree, anyway. <laughs> Sometimes it's easier <laughs> on the ground. It, it's fun, man. It it'll make your chest bump for sure hunting mm-hmm. deer from the ground.
1: Yep. Yeah, it's a different experience, but I've gotten picked off a lot more time than I have in a tree. Being on the ground.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. If you have a deer just like walk by and it comes through at 15 yards and it doesn't see you, you don't move, and it just keeps on going about its way, like that's that's a pretty good feeling.
2: Right. But then again, when they blow you out because you weren't in a tree and then they blow the rest of the deer out. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's your non-ideal. The only other times I'll sit on the ground uh, during like an evening hunt would be if I just literally don't have time, or I get to whatever spot that's deep that I wanted to get to, and the, the sign's not there, and I want to switch to Plan B, and by the time I get over to Plan B, it's like I'm like pushing it in terms of time, and like the deer might like be getting on their feet pretty quick. That's something I was just tucking on the ground and just finish out the hunt like that. Yeah, I mean,
2: as long as you're hunting, right? Yeah. Well, man, uh, I'll shoot you my number. Definitely stay in touch.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Glad you're able um, to make the time and, and get you on the podcast.
2: Yeah, I love doing this stuff. So, good luck tomorrow if you go out hunting, dude.
1: Thanks, and good luck to you for end of the season, and and finding yeah, that buck thanks. tomorrow. Hopefully, tell me if you find them. I will, dude. Thank you very much. Yep. Talk to you later. Good night. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content from Bobby Boswell or myself, subscribe to DIY Sportsman and Boudreaux Boswell on YouTube. And with that, thanks for listening.